Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching WandaVision. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Agatha Harkness. <laughs> what a twist! Um, uh, if you are just joining us for the first time, what we do on this podcast is that Richard and I like to pick a show that we're watching a little too closely, perhaps uh, break it down each week. Uh, right now we're watching WandaVision. We also, you might notice a little later on in your feed this weekend, uh, Richard and I did a special one-off episode about the um, Channel 4 slash HBO Max series, It's a Sin. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, it's a fantastic, um, but we're a little mixed miniseries that, that drops, um, five episodes. It dropped, I think this Thursday. So if you want to go ahead and watch those and when you're, when you're good and ready, you can go listen to us talk about that. Um, but for, for now, right now, we're going to stay inside the bubble of Marvel. Uh, and talk about WandaVision, uh, episode seven, breaking the fourth wall. This week of the podcast, we have a very special guest in the shape of Paul Bettany. Um, he, it's a, it's a nice long, uh, little chat with Paul Bettany. Uh, we talked about both WandaVision, but we also talked about, uh, his film, Uncle Frank, uh, which is on Amazon right now. So, um, and he had something really very lovely to say about why he wanted to do that particular project. So, um, I really recommend you stick around and, uh, after you hear us blunder about wildly in the dark about what's going on in WandaVision, you can hear a very small, uh, smart, uh, charming British man talk about, uh, his life and career. Um, all right. So, Richard. We always yes. like to start the podcast with some emails. Yes. And people can email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You've got a couple emails uh, for us to hit this fine Friday morning. Yeah. Um, once again, thank you, everyone who 
sends us lovely emails. They're very helpful and illuminating and all those things. Uh, so the first email is from Zach. And the subject line is not enough red herrings. Uh, and Zach writes, uh, I've been watching this series with my 65 year old mother who has never seen a single MCU film and has no comics knowledge. So basically me, no, (laughs) I've seen all the MCU MCU movies. So I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, she called Agnes as the villain in episode three, in particular, when she was talking with vision and, uh, Herb at the fence and became more certain as the show went on. She, an Agatha Christie fan thinks there weren't any viable alternatives within the hex. Quicksilver came in too late. Dottie had no real material outside of episode two wanda is too sympathetic does the show fail as a mystery if only people over theorizing are getting fooled with sidelining emma caulfield a mistake can we just blame the runtime would love to hear your thoughts zach i think that's an interesting question um and it kind of made me think about what the show's intention was Mm. like like it didn't strike me that that like surprising that agnes was more than met the eye and also wasn't good (laughs) you know i feel like i feel like the show we're so conditioned to like expect a villain you know that we were kind of and it didn't really seem like it was going to come from anywhere else i mean beyond like the bad like military guy sword guy yeah so but yeah i mean i think that if people are watching it for real surprise if people are you know if they're sussing out that um Agnes slash Agatha is the villain like so soon in the series that might be kind of disappointing and like lost or many shows before this. Yes, there is a a danger of over theorizing. I mean, I remember, uh, I, so many intricate theories about lost and, and eventually they were just like, (laughs) no, it's just what you saw. (laughs) Um, and I think that in this case, uh, yeah, it might just be kind of what we saw. Um, first of all, shout out, um, to all the Agatha Christie fans out there. I am also a huge Agatha Christie fan. I think those people are some of the, the best people in the world. So, um, I want to say that there's like a kind of viewer out there who is surprised by this reveal, who maybe isn't reading any recaps or, or listening to any podcasts and doesn't know who Catherine Hahn is. So doesn't know to expect more from her. Like maybe it's a big moment for, for those folks. Um, but I do, you know, I think other than sort of this, the slight fake out last week, um, you know, where, where Agnes is meant to look as befuddled as, as anyone else. Um, and I think that threw a bunch of people off. They're like, well, maybe, maybe you were wrong about the Agatha Harkness thing all along. Um, I, I think it, you know, they've, they've been telegraphing their moves pretty, pretty handily. However, I will say that it is my personal theory. That we are not done. It's episode seven. I don't think we're done with all the reveals yet. And I think there's one more layer of villainy yet to come. I could explain to you why I think that if you want, or I can just say that. Um, but that's what I think. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly more to come. And, you know, I don't really know much about Agatha Harkness as a character. I, I did a little bit of reading um, after the reveal in the episode. And I guess in one of the storylines, Agatha was kind of a an a mentor to yeah. uh, Wanda, right? So maybe they're not setting her up to be like an outright villain who needs to be destroyed. Maybe there's a different perp. She has a different purpose or, or intention, and there's something else nefarious, or kind of like 
Wanda said in this episode, she was like, maybe I already am, you know, the villain, um, which could set up something interesting for future, like Dr. Strange, you know, the sequel that she's in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, I mean, her story is definitely going to continue in Dr. Strange. Um, it just, it's a question of, I, I have long had the question of whether this story was going to end with Wanda as like an overpowered big bad that we would need to call Benedict Cumberbatch in to fix or stop. Um, or if, you know, she would end up like a, a, a deflated seeking redemption sort of person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Still don't. I, I've always been leaning towards the latter. I would prefer her not to be the, the, a big villain. Um, because her whole thing is so rooted in such tragedy. I would just prefer, and I, and like I've mentioned before on this podcast, I really would prefer it not be this sort of like hysterical woman kind of, um, trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, writ, writ large that I would prefer that not be the case. And so I'm sure there's a way to do it that, that wouldn't be that, but it would be my preference that she ends this um, show, you know, not done battling her demons necessarily, but not as the villain, you know? Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I had been hoping that Monica's uh, grief over her mother I thought that the thing we get in this episode, which is Monica talking about her grief to uh, Wanda was going to be like the big power down scene, right? The big de-escalation was going to be Monica being like, Hey, now it's okay to grieve and let go. Um, but we saw it here. So maybe that's, that's, we, we already got it. So maybe something else is coming, you know, not, Hey, now you're an all-star, uh, get your game on. <laughs> Stop playing uh yeah yeah so so i don't know i i i actually think we're still in red herring town uh with all due respect to the listener's mother uh a fellow agatha christie fan um so but okay i'll say this is an agatha christie fan um the the rule of an agatha christie mystery is you can't just like bring in someone from nowhere at the end of the story agatha does agatha christie does not do that Right. Like that. Cause that just, that can feel really cheap. Cause you're like, well, how was I supposed to figure that out? And I felt like there was a slightly cheap, I mean, it's episode seven, so I don't feel too frosty about it, but it's slightly cheap that like to reveal to us that not just, uh, oh, she was manipulating things and while you weren't watching, but like literal scenes that we were watching actually went a different way. Do you know what I mean? And then you're like, well, what chance do I have of sleuthing out what's happening if uh, the conversation in the car between Vision and, and and Agnes in the Halloween episode is not playing out the way that it's being shown to us? Do you know? Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, okay. uh, fair enough. Um, all right. I have one more email to read. This is yeah. from Shruti. Um, she says some nice things about our show, which is great. And then she – so she gets to um, – her question, which is, I had a question about TV tropes outside of the bubble. When Sword first gets the TV feed, they start putting characters on the walls with their info, driver's licenses, etc. This, to me, felt a lot like breaking a story in a writer's room of a television show. Mm-hmm. In the most recent episode, when Darcy was in hacking was hacking into Project Cataract, she says, "I haven't made it through the Hayward's la- through Hayward's last firewall." 
I laughed at that part because I thought it was a joke on how easy hacking looks in TV shows. Do y'all think the writers are intentionally adding these TV tropes outside of the bubble? I'm more confident in the writer's room being intentional than the hacking thing, since they do need Darcy to hack in to move the plot forward. Have y'all seen any other TV tropes outside of the bubble? Joanna? Um, I love this question from Trudy, who is always um, thinking five levels down about television. Um, I think we mentioned before, either I mentioned to you or I mentioned it to Anthony. Oh, and I should mention, if, if you're just joining us, for the first time, I forgot this part. After you listen to Paul Bettany, Anthony Breskin's going to come in and we're going to talk about more comic book stuff. I apologize. I did not get a full night's sleep last night. So I forgot to get you all hyped up about Anthony Breskin in the back half of the show. But we will have a, a sort of advanced comic book section in the back of the show with with uh, Breskin. But something that I talked to either him or you about, I can't remember which, is this idea of um, how I don't think it's a coincidence that um the the figure of hayward who's who's the head of sword uh is is called the director director hayward you know what i mean like and then someone pointed out to me that he's he's being called acting director right which you know acting director means temporary director but also like it's it feels like another sort of play on show business so i think we should never stop looking for um you know, this winking sort of meta TV language that they're using in the show. I think that's definitely intentionally there. Um, as, as far as like tropes that I've seen outside of the bubble, um, I guess, um, I guess I would, I would circle back to Hayward and just say that I think, um, that dynamic is not necessarily the most, that, that sort of like, his villainous intentions is not necessarily the most sophisticated, um, you know, villain reveal that I've seen in a, in a Marvel property. Uh, so I don't know the, 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 the young, very capable black woman who is grounded and the, and the like, and the smiling white, older white man who like has a job that you kind of suspect should be hers. Like maybe that's, maybe that's a trope uh, that we should be on the lookout for. Um, what do you think, Richard? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I like that the hacking thing is funny because that was such a thing with like 24 and yeah, a- Abby yeah. and CIS and various other characters and other shows. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I haven't noticed anything specific beyond that and, and the, the writer's room thing, but um I I was kind of laughing to myself watching this episode because the scene where Monica is trying to drive this like souped up truck or whatever the hell it was yeah. Yeah. into uh the the bubble the hex I was like oh this is like a metaphor for Marvel trying to break into TV <laughs> <laughs> um obviously they've done TV series like many uh before this but like this is like the new era of trying to make the MCU specifically like work uh on on streaming you know um and oh, i like that yeah uh, they they had to like pare down their big machine and just have like a character go in you know they right couldn't, they couldn't take all of their big apparatus or apparatuses and, um so i don't know i think if, maybe that yeah. was intentional somehow oh i like that and a very interesting character too you know what i mean like i think yeah. there's a, a lot of people have been writing in the last couple weeks i've seen in the in the wandavision discourse about how they felt like 
let's really sit back and think about the fact that the first big show from Marvel on TV is this like very weird big swing, um, you know, centered on female characters and female grief, uh, show. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, 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 a uh, it's kind of, it feels kind of like a miracle. It wasn't how, it wasn't the plan. And it's kind of fun that this is, that this is the start. Um, you know, and something that Kevin Feige was saying, uh, when he talked to us, uh, for the first episode of the series is, uh, that it did feel kind of perfect that for Marvel's entree into the world of television or his, his Marvel Studios, because there was Marvel television before, but this is Marvel Studios television, right? And so for his entree into the world of television, that it be this like tour of TV, this pastiche, this exploration of what works on TV and what hasn't in the past and stuff like that. So I think that's a good segue into asking you, Richard, like whether how you felt about the way in which this episode, which is, you know, trying to hit a modern family slash the office slash if the opening credits are to be believed happy endings uh vibe um how how did this one work for you richard not so well i'll be honest tell me about it i think that they arrived at a point in the 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 arc of the season where they had to do a ton of plot but couldn't abandon the conceit you know Mm -hmm. and they were like well we're now in the 2000s so i guess it would make sense to do these mockumentary things and yeah, they got some of the trappings right. The lighting was off. It was too dark um, to, mm. to ape <laughs> Modern Family. Um, but I think it also just like, I didn't really get the, it didn't mix well with this whole like old timey circus thing or carnival or whatever that was. Um, it just felt a little scattered. Uh, and I, 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 I liked the idea of, it's a different kind of acting that sort of like to camera fake interview thing. And it was fun watching these two, these three actors do that. Um, but I think I just wanted more, you know, I wanted more of the rhythm of a modern family or the office where yeah. but I think because they had so much to tell us, like in the mythology of it, they couldn't really focus on, on those details. I agree. Like, uh, so I think um, the person who uses it the best in this episode is Elizabeth Olsen. Um, I think her, Julie Bowen impression was really um, yeah, it fantastic. Really is a Julie Bowen impression. It's funny. <laughs> it's really good, I think. And, um, you know, Kat Dennings for all that, like, you know, she's done sitcom before. I don't, I don't think I got, uh, you know, as much off of her, um, scenes with, with Paul. Like, um, uh, you know, I think, I think they were also supposed to trying to do like a little bit of arrested development thing. And I kind of understand why they did the circus thing. Cause it feels like, um, uh, you know, th- this made sense to them as as what a bunch of trucks and tents could be turned into. But then it just didn't really like work in the end, I think, thematically to have it be a circus or or like maybe they just need to leave the circus faster than they did. Um, and, you know, Darcy has to do some exposition for vision in the truck and stuff like that. Um, I, do, I mean, I do think the like roadside Paul Bettany sitting in a chair outside the truck and and you're not meant to question why he would be there until he takes the mic off and is like, why am I here? Um, I thought that was kind of cute um, because, you know, if you, if you take one step back and think about all those uh, confessionals in Modern Family or The Office, I mean, The Office has has the like shell excuse of a documentary <laughs> being filmed, but really you're just sort of like, 
you know, it's a, it's a fun storytelling thing, but if you, if you pick, pick it apart for a second, it doesn't really hold up. And that's something that I think they're kind of poking fun at, but I completely agree with you. Like, I, I think what's interesting is like, we were, a lot of people were so impatient with the first couple episodes that they wanted more plot and less pastiche. Um, and I really liked the pastiche, but I understood that impulse to, to want more plot to go with it. And or more mystery plot, more Marvel plot. And now I think we've tipped to a side of the scale where I I felt this last week too a little bit, but this week even more that I wanted more of the pastiche and less of the plot. So um and yeah, I guess they didn't figure fully figure out a way that they could keep them both running at the same time, which I understand. Um yeah. but yeah. And then we have two more episodes. So are the is this now done? This. I think it I think it yeah. is unless yeah. unless we do like um more of sort of the the haywire stuff that we saw in this episode with everything sort of glitching. Yeah. I think we might get some of that, but I I think we're done with like um the sort of direct decade analog uh, yeah. journey. So. I I think another thing that I mean this is just Marvel's going to Marvel, you know, mm-hmm. but there was a, a a a part of this episode with Monica in particular, where I was like, Oh, this is just like a delivery system for like more characters for the movies. (laughs) You know, like it just felt a little bit like, Oh, this is just this kind of bridge show because Monica is going to be big in like Captain Marvel two. And she now clearly has some kind of, you know, molecularly altered powers. Who knows Mm -hmm. what they are exactly. Um, but like it just, I, you know, I think there's a, there's, uh, a sense, uh, there was a sense for me in this episode where I was like, oh, right, this is just like a Marvel thing. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean like the specialness of it, the uniqueness of it um, began to wane, I think. In the, and it was always going to because they had to kind of fully tether it to the rest of the, the world or the universe. Um, but and I knew that was coming, but I still felt kind of disappointed, which isn't really fair to the show. <laughs> but yeah, like, I- there it is, you know. I hear you. I mean, I think, the, and I think at least that was the expectation they've been trying to set this whole time, where they've set this whole time, we're going to do this little journey through TV history, and then it's going to turn into more familiar Marvel movie territory, the territory that you're more familiar with. So that's something that they were saying to fans who might have perhaps been impatient to get to that. But for those of us who are really loving like the super weirdness of it, um, you know, th- there's a downside. I don't think we're fully done with like all the weirdness yet. Um, but, um, but yeah, it is, it is going to get more marvelly. And, you know, all of these Marvel properties right now have that burden of trying to launch like nine different things shooting off from them. Um, and you know, I, I, the Monica stuff works for me, but there are definitely times in Marvel's history where that hasn't worked for me. I, the, the most famous example, I think being age of Ultron, which, um, is where Scarlet Witch and Vision entered in the first place. But Ultron has always to me felt like the most overburdened, um, Marvel movie in terms of all the things it, it, it was like a pivot point and it was trying to launch like Thor Ragnarok and like all these other things off the back of it. And I felt like it, it lost its own cohesive story in the process yeah fully yeah. i mean i have, I, I've, I rewatched some of that movie recently but like mm-hmm. 
I remember when I, when I first saw it kind of feeling that it's like, this is like not its own thing. It's just like, it's the, the, it's the room full of doors, you know, and it's opening some of the doors, but there's nothing really in the room. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 that was the beginning of phase two in this sort of Marvel's vision of its plan. Right. I think phase three, phase three. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Um, you know, and this is, this is all, we we know this. We know that Marvel builds things this way and and whatever. And and I'm not I'm I'm excited to see where Monica goes. I don't. It's not that I'm like annoyed that she now is like a superhero. <laughs> it, it's just that like there felt like this. They're like, okay, we're gonna do this show about Wanda and Vision to some extent, um, but also secretly, it's a backdoor origin story for another character, <laughs> you know. And uh, I I they they are much better at that kind of synergy than. Uh, you know, the comic book company across the street. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, or around the corner. <laughs> um, wow. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it, it's, it just still, it rankles a little bit because it's like, I don't like seeing like magic tricks. Cause I'm like, I feel, I don't like feeling fooled. <laughs> you know, like I don't like, I don't like, but taking the bait, I guess. Um and, you know, that's it. I'm really excited for what the next two episodes are. Although I do have one concern that maybe you mm. can answer for me or maybe you can't. Okay. Or maybe you have a theory. So in the reveal where it's, you know, um, Agatha all along. I mean. S- yeah. Did you at least like love that musical? Oh, montage? no, totally. I was totally yeah. into that. And like, it was satisfying to be like, here's why you hire Catherine Hunt. You know, like, exactly. of she's going to get something big and fun to do. Oh um, my god! Just every single face that she pulled, every single one. I was like, I can't pick a favorite one. I can't pick a favorite of this musical montage here at the end. I wa- I rewatched it like four times. Anyway, sorry. Hit me. Hit me with your question. So in that little opening credits montagey thing, um, yeah. we see her kind of behind a bush, basically like manipulating the Evan Peters Pietro. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, is he totally just a fabrication of of Agatha's? You know, because we then at the end with Monica kind of like opening the basement doors and then Pietro, the other, you know, other Pietro shows up and is presumably going to like do something bad to her. Um, does that mean he's like actually corporeal or like, I guess I got, I had gotten kind of excited maybe ahead of myself about like this interesting way of folding in like X-Men movies into this thing. But maybe it's just kind of a little gag more than it is a lit- an actual thing. Right. I don't know. Yeah, no, I def okay, so I definitely still think that this is the X-Men Fox X-Men uh Quicksilver. Um and the the way I keep those characters distinct in my head is that that character is technically named Peter, whereas Aaron Taylor Johnson's character is named Pietro. So Pietro versus Peter. So what I think happened, um is because Wanda seems confused about um Pietro slash Peter being there. Sword had nothing to do with it, right? Monica's like, it wasn't us. It's not you. It wasn't us, right? So let's say it's Agatha, right? That Agatha did this. So I think Agatha needed the brother character because Wanda keeps like talking about him and, and she needs it for something. I think she pulled him out of the other universe and then, uh, you like sort of ensorcelled him with her purple magic to give him the memories of Pietro. Um, that's my interpretation of what's going on. But, um, I think, I think you're, I think the, the show wants you to question, um, 
like after last week, a lot of people thought he was the villain based on like how he was interrogating her and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And so I think in this week's episode, it's, cl- it's clear that he is a puppet of some kind, whether or not he's, I don't think Agatha can create him whole cloth. Mm-hmm. I think everything here other than the twins are made from something that already existed, whether it's townspeople or perhaps someone pulled in from an, an alternate dimension. Um, that's what I think. Okay. But, um, that's a, a what I was th- hoping you would say. Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. A clue that we have in this episode is the, the, the fake commercial that's in this episode, um, is for like a, uh, you know, a mental health drug and they called Nexus. Right. And we see that couple that we've seen again and again and again and again. And I still think that, I don't know if I've told you this theory. So it's kind of a common theory, but I really am into it is that those people will wind up being her parents. Right. Um, so uh, Nexus, uh, is a Marvel term for like basically the crossroads of the multiverse. Um, and, uh, Scarlet Witch canonically in the comic books is, uh, what's known as a Nexus being, meaning that she's the same in all the universes, like things change in all the universes, but Scarlet Witch is like the one constant. Um, so there's only like, one of her uh, or, sh- or whatever that version of her is. It's the same in all the universes. Okay. Um, I don't know how the, the show is going to do it. Uh, if they are going to do it, but the, the, the use of the word nexus sort of pinged things for people. This idea that Scarlet Witch is a nexus being. And as a nexus being, as, you know, the, the, the commercial says something like, uh, cause the world doesn't revolve around you or does it? Right. So like this idea that, that could be like her fantasy world revolving around her, or it could be all the, like she's out of, uh, she's holding down the fort on like a, uh, like a, like a thin space <laughs> between the multiverses, a nexus, a pivot point, like, you know, and so like the fabric of reality between the worlds is really thin here. And that's how Agatha Harkness is able to pluck Peter out and make him act the part of Pietro. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that that sounds a little, a little Marvel comics complicated and we'll see if that's, you know, maybe, Maybe like lost, we should just say simplest uh, explanation best, but I do still think they're doing a multiverse thing. I do. Which then hopefully, I mean, we don't know how this show is going to end. Yeah. I hope that like this, the grand reveal of Agatha doesn't just last two episodes and then she's gone. You know, I think sometimes with like one, with like one off villains in Marvel movies, like I actually weirdly, (laughs) which is, it's like, it was totally like, aimed at people like me but like i kind of didn't love kate blanchett in ragnarok because I, I just think that whole plot line was so felt so separate from the like gladiator- gladiatorial jeff goldblum planet thing um mm-hmm. but it was still fun but then she's gone at the end of it and i'm just yeah. like oh like i don't know i feel like there are some good villains that get one chance and i just hope that's not true for her because i think if she's kind of like a cue from star trek like trickster sometimes good sometimes bad mostly kind mm-hmm. of ambivalent or neutral or whatever um it would be fun if she kind of just recurred in the universe you know popping up to do you know little tricks or whatever i love i mean like loki i mean like i would i would i love the idea of Catherine Hahn being a trickster of this universe i i also would be completely gutted 
if uh especially since we we only are going to get han going full han for like two episodes right yeah. uh if this is the last we see of her it may be it may be that Catherine han herself doesn't want to be like forever locked into you know like i think sometimes these actors you know a kate blanchett will take a part because she's like sure i'll do your one marvel movie you know what i mean but i don't want to like be your loki or or be your thanos or whatever it is um and i wonder like if they keep going i always think about this hmm. eventually they're just gonna get every big actor you know i know like, they're gonna run out right i remember in um <laughs> i think it's ant-man and the wasp like Lawrence Fishburne's in it in kind of like a supporting role. And there's one scene where he's like fighting off big ants. And it was like, Lawrence Fishburne is better than this. But like, <laughs> but like now he's in the MCU tech, you know, like, and I, and I, it's like, is Meryl Streep going to be in it someday? Is Daniel Day Lewis like, who knows? Like, um, Denzel Washington, probably not them, but like, but it's maybe, just kind of a, but like, but I, I, I do think that someone in like Catherine Hahn's sort of star profile, she's a, she's famous. She's very much beloved, but she's not like, a list, a list. Yeah, she could, you know, pop in and out of things for for a long time. Do a, do a week of shooting or less than, and and you know, I don't that know. That would make me really happy. I mean, um, for a lot of her appearances in the Marvel comics, Agatha Harkness is a ghost. Uh, uh so it it would be kind of fun to have her as like a ghost figure, maybe forever, just hanging out with Wanda. I wouldn't hate that at all. Um, but the uh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that brings me actually to this conversation with Paul Bettany because like Paul Bettany has been and Endles with Olsen have been teasing this big actor um, who has yet to be revealed in WandaVision that there's going to be like a huge actor who's going to like take us all by surprise that hasn't leaked yet that we haven't figured it out yet. Um, and so I've been doing the math on this and <laughs> like everyone else on the internet. And you're right that I was just like, you know, the list is kind of short when you're like, who hasn't been, it's sort of like when you think about British actors who haven't been in a Harry Potter movie. Yeah. Like when you, when you try to think of like big act, I was like, who's like big and starry enough that viewers would be like, Oh my God, so-and-so's here and hasn't been in a Marvel movie. Like I was uh, one character that a lot of people were talking about online this week was the character, this character blue Marvel, who's not like a hugely famous outside of the comic books, um, Marvel character. So the reveal of the character himself wouldn't be a big deal. So it would have to be the actor who would be a big deal that would make audiences go, Oh my God. Right. And blue Marvel traditionally is Monica Rambeau's love interest. So I would be looking for like a younger black man, uh, because that's, you know, that's who he is in, in the comics too. And I was just like, I don't know. Haven't they all been in black Panther? Like I was like, who's left? Like who, who could be in this role that would, that would like knock my socks off. I do have a, uh, a fun theory, but I think it's a little, like it's a little, I don't want to like, I don't know, Richard, I don't want to like say it. You want me to say it? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I don't think he's talking about blue Marvel. This is something that, that the internet, I think figured out in like, uh, a couple hours last night, uh, they finally came up with a solution that satisfies me at least. Uh, which is, uh, so Paul Bettany said it's a, it's an actor that he's wanted to work with his whole life. Um, someone he's never worked with before. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that it would knock our socks off basically. And so, you know, the, 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 big brained nerds on the internet got got to like cross checking with Paul Bettany's, you know, IMDb and and <laughs> who has me appeared with and stuff like that. And dug through old interviews where he talked about like 
his acting idols. Mm. And there's this 2015 interview, I think it is, uh, at, at like a <laughs> Comic Con in uh, Asia somewhere where he said that his like three acting, he named three acting idols growing up. And he said, uh, Marlon Brando, who is deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the ghost of Marlon Brando. No, yeah. um, Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. Now, Al Pacino has met with Kevin Feige, has talked about meeting with Kevin Feige, has given interviews where he's like, sure, I'd do a Marvel. Th- I don't know. Well, I, sure, I'd do a Marvel thing. I'm not above that. I'd love to do that. That sounds fun. Uh, so um, I'm thinking Al Pacino as like the final actual big bad of the series. Um, the, the one pulling Agatha's strings uh, at the end of all of What this. character would that be? So there's two options here. I don't know if we've talked about this in this section before, but there's a character called Mephisto. Yeah. Who is like a, uh, basically the devil. Uh, and that's, He's I played think, the why, devil before. Exactly. I think that's why people are like really high in Al Pacino for that because he, uh, you know, played the devil and the devil's advocate. Um, and then there's a character called Nightmare who basically, I mean, it sounds wild to be like, and Al Pacino as Nightmare. Um, but wilder <laughs> things have happened in the MCU, right? But Nightmare basically, uh, manipulates. I'm a uh, nightmare. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, manipulates reality of uh you know basically induces nightmares uh in people and and living nightmares and then feeds off of them in that and so mephisto a lot of people have been thinking about mephisto for a while now because he's in the comic books very much involved in wanda and agatha and the birth of the twins and all of that stuff in the comic books there's this character of mephisto who ultimately like reabsorbs the twins into his like demonic, uh, you know, soul. Cause they're like shards of his soul or whatever, you know? So like, uh, and there have been winking nods to the devil. Um, like, like, uh, Peter Pietro calls the twins demon spawn last week, or there's this moment in episode two, where Emma Caulfield's character Dottie says devils in the details and, and, uh, Agatha says that's not the only place he is. Um, so, you know, people have been wondering if, if Mephisto, um, who is known to turn into animals has maybe been these like animals, like is maybe the rabbit or was maybe the stork and has just been around this whole time. And we'll get a reveal of that. Um, I like the idea of nightmare better just for the way in which they've, they've used, they've made some allusions to nightmares also in, in the show. Like, you know, this nightmare ends if we stop Wanda, like they've used the word nightmare a couple of times and stuff like that. So I think they're sort of, uh, winking at both of those possibilities for people who are like obsessively looking for clues. And, um, but I'm leaning towards nightmare only because nightmare, um, is supposed to be the, was at one point supposed to be the main villain of Doctor Strange, uh, two. So and it was like I rumored lo- to be Eva Green, right? Right. Uh, so I like the idea of them dropping a Pacino <laughs> right at the end of WandaVision and then him being, um, you know, a big, bad in a movie coming up you know what i mean like like gone like like 
loses the battle in this series, but it still has a bigger war to fight um, in, in the MCU. Yeah. I do like imagining Al Pacino being like, I'm playing a stork, you know, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, like it's just fun to think about him, like describing it to his family. <laughs> you know? Um, that would be so fun. Then, I, I feel like they it, haven't done a ton with like older actors, you know? Um, yeah. You've got your like Robert Redford, Jeff Bridges. Uh, your Michael Douglas, stuff like that, you know, but like, um, I think it would be really fun um, to bring Pacino in. It could be completely wrong. It could be De Niro. We don't, we haven't like, you know, ruled that out or it could be someone else that Paul Bettany has never given an Asian comic con interview about them being like an idol of his or whatever. But, uh, but, but my I, whole I w- life implies it's older, fully. Right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's well. He uh, in the interview that he gave me, he confirmed it was not Evan Peters that he was talking about. So, um, okay, so yeah, it, yeah. It it um it implies someone older. So I'm I like this theory a lot. It's I, I've been I've been really puzzling this over, and I, I finally feel like there's something where the puzzle pieces uh fit. So I would just say, you know, like the the last thing I'll say, I think, before we throw to Paul himself is if you look at the 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 magic colors in this episode. So red has been Wanda's color throughout. Agatha's color is revealed as purple. But that book in her basement has this like orange magic around it. So whose magic is that is my question, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. If anyone who's listening to this can do a good Al Pacino impression or know someone who can, if you wanted to record them saying I'm a stork or something along stork. those lines, I would really be happy. We're not going to pay you, but sorry, but like uh, we can't, but I'm a bug. Uh, you know, there was that like weird shot of a bug crawling on her drapes. I'm like, maybe I'm that's Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I obviously cannot do an Al Pacino impression. So. <laughs> All right. So that, I mean, I, I sort of dug into that on an even more granular level on a post that's up on BF.com right now. If you want to check in on the Pacino, the great big Pacino theory that's sweeping the nation right now. Um, Richard, anything else you want to say before we, uh, we talk to Mr. Batney? No, I'm just, I'm eager to listen myself. So I think we should just get right to it. Excellent. Just a little warning for folks. Uh, not a warning, but um, my my mic wasn't working as well as it usually does when I recorded this. So uh, just think of it as a transmission from inside the bubble, uh, if you're wondering about the sound quality. Um, so let us hear from Mr. Paul Bettany. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I wanted to start by asking you, this is a really sort of broader question, about your approach to playing a character like Vision, who at the best of times is only a couple years old, maybe even you know, <laughs> younger than that in, in this iteration. And how do you as an actor approach someone who doesn't have the memories and the human experiences that other characters do? Yeah, it's it was um it's been a it's been such a fun journey with that specifically because he I remember thinking, well, uh, there were a lot of weird things. Frankly, my my now wife, I suppose, was at my birth, which is seems to be strange. I don't know. Uh, well, <laughs> frankly, I, I was born on 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 film, which is something I hope never to have to do again. Um, yes. Yeah, so you're you're at the same time you're sort of omnipotent and and super naive. I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yes, you're born and you're omnipotent and you're naive uh, and you're learning everything with incredible speed. Um, and then I suppose by civil war, he's kind of really interested in in what, human beings are and what love is and loyalty and all of that sort of stuff. And then I guess we now, (laughs) yeah, it's very, it's, 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 um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been, it's a peculiar journey, right? Um, and, uh, you're left with, you're left with your sort of imagination and, and his, his 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 raison d'etre, which is is um, is Scarlet Witch, you know, and he uh, he his love for Wanda Maximoff, yeah. How does that fit that that combination, as you say, of naivete and omnipotence? How does that fit with a sitcom dad character? I mean, I feel like that that sort of level of befuddlement but power uh, is consistent with what we've seen through the decades for that kind of character. Yes, and 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 also, you know, I was very concerned when we... Well, I wasn't concerned. I was very interested in how we were going to solve vision remaining vision. Mm-hmm. And I think that is... You, you've hit upon the the... The point, really, that I guess the point is at, at Vision's core, he is decent. You know what I mean? He's just a decent human being who loves Wonder Maximoff very, very much. And if that stays the same, you, it, 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 it can it can take new um, the recipe can take new uh, flavors. You know, he's always been, he's a bit of Ultron, he's a bit of Tony Stark, he's a bit of of, of Jarvis, um, sorry. And um, uh, so so it can take a new flavor if you want to throw a bit of Dick Van Dyke in there. <laughs> you know, John Cleese or whoever. As long as that sort of core remains the same, I think you've, they are playing with the the, 
the trope of of yes, exactly, befuddled, uh, loving husband and father, uh, and it was delightful to do. In these later episodes that we've seen, uh, you know, the last few, there's of course this this darker element injected into that as Vision begins to understand that he might not be fully in control of his reality, um, and especially that that lack of control might be sourced to the person he loves and trusts the most. So mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could talk about that dynamic, introducing that dynamic into this, what has been a very beautiful love story. For Vision, it's the kind of Jimmy Stewart um, um, episode where he he becomes the he becomes very much the audience of, of going. Actually, what is going on in this town? And I now need a. a I now, as a very average man, <laughs> despite, despite being an omnipotent uh, robot, I am going to, I, I'm the everyman. I am now going to investigate what is going on in this town. And, um, uh, and so that's, that's really what, it brought to mind things like Rear Window for me, where I was thinking about that, that suspicion that there's something just not right about the things that I am looking at and seeing. But as far as it being his own, I mean, he's in the process of discovering who is responsible for for this, and uh, and I can't give too much more away because they would sure. be. <laughs> the snipers will get us. They understand. No, I, I I understand that it's more complicated, but at least at this point, so the the episode that I've just seen. Uh, is the Halloween episode, and if that's what you mean by the Jimmy Stewart episode of sort of well, wandering, yeah. I mean, I've never mentioned Jimmy Stewart before, but yeah. it sort of felt like that, where you are the you're 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 the you're the you're the average guy, you know. You're you're, <laughs> you're, you're you've realised that something's not quite right in 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 um, in Westview, and you're gonna you're gonna figure you're gonna figure it out because you just. Gee, well, because you just want to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. I, I, and and, and I, I kind of, I relished, uh, but, you know, those sort of everyman characters. Like that. So I just think it's really funny that he happens to be an omnipotent robot. <laughs> just happens to be purple at the same time. It's fine. Your everyday, common garden, average robot. Um, I had a slightly technical question for you, actually, about that. Um it's, you know, to my untrained uh, visual effects eye, it seems like you're doing more actual flying than uh, you would do in a Marvel movie, that they use more digital doubles in a Marvel movie. Is that accurate or inaccurate in terms of your time in a, in a harness or something like that? Um, they, yeah, they were, well, that's hard for me to answer, actually, because um, there did seem to be a lot of time in a harness. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and you can really tell that there's a lot of time when you're in a harness. <laughs> time goes really slowly when you're in a harness. Um, yeah. Uh, so there seemed to be a lot of it, but then my uh, my uh, commitments my, were, were, were a lot more than they usually are in, in those movies because, you know, you're, there, there are so many other characters and this is more screen time. So it's hard for me to say whether it's more... Digi or less digi? I, I I really don't know. Well, to you know, 
to that point, um, let's say the eighties episode when you are having a fight in oh, midair yeah. and you're having to do a lot of emotional work whilst I imagine in a harness. Um, you know, what are what are those days like for you? Oh, they well it there are there, you know, there are lots of differences between Lizzie and I. And <laughs> and one of them's very obvious. <laughs> and one of them makes uh being in a harness um uh a, a little more complicated, I think, for <laughs> For me, uh, and, um, uh, but I loved that. I loved that scene because it seemed I loved the. I re- we both did. We both really relished the idea of doing a sort of uh, sitcom mum and pop fight, but with superheroes, you know. Uh, uh, um, and it was, uh, but but play it really real. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I loved the idea of them rolling her rolling the credits and stuff, and you know it's. It's a delicious, um, a deliciously imaginative idea. And um, uh, so what was that like? It was, it, I think it was mercifully short, actually. I think that was, I seem to remember it was a Friday night and everybody was trying to get home. And so we, we, we just did the flying bit last. We rehearsed the hell out of it and we shot everything up to the takeoff. And then, <laughs> and then we did our... Uh, we did us. We did our stuff. But yes, but we would normally do those sorts of things for real as well in in in, in the movies. Yeah, I just can't remember a lot of really emotional work for Vision in the air. Usually, you're shooting things. Uh, you know what I mean? Or moving. Yes, so, yeah. uh, but you know, there's sometimes you're doing stuff where you get to the close-ups, and especially if it's in the sky. Uh, and you're you're just you're just standing on one leg, making it look like you're floating a little bit, bobbing around, <laughs> which, which is really uh, peculiar. And some of my favourite moments on the Avengers movies is when everybody has to sort of take off together, and you just see all of these idiots doing, that. <laughs> and and nobody goes anywhere. Really. <laughs> really very funny. Um, you uh, you've. Before the season started, you talked about some of the very specific, not just sitcoms, but sitcom episode sort of roadmap that was laid out in front of you, like the Tom Hanks episode of Family Ties or, you know, a Halloween episode of Malcolm in the Middle, these very specific landmarks. Uh, It's my understanding that we've got sort of one more sitcom era to visit and then it's off the map for this story. And so I'm wondering, you know, if there were any other sort of roadmap or landmarks that you had to guide you through the rest of the, of the show? Uh, well, there were low... There were, yeah, there, I think quite a bit has been made of them because probably because I mentioned them, but there were lots of others that I didn't mention, you know. We, so, so, you know, I mean... Okay, so, for instance, yes, there was family ties, but there was also... Um, um, you know the the God, what is it? The one with the Austin twins in. You know the, the Full um, House, Full House. Full House. Yeah, know, yeah. We were looking at lots of um, different sitcoms from from different decades, and um, and the same is true with the 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 nineties and then and then the the two thousands. So, uh, but um, I think you'll. When does this come out? This comes out after episode seven, so after the sort of modern family slash office 
areas. Oh, well, so, yeah, yeah you're, you're very much in modern family slash office. I mean, it's very, yeah, it's very, um, well, you've already seen there are, you know, there are little confessionals. And, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and we, uh, we exploit that idea to its fullest comic potential. There's a lot of potential, you know, I, I really don't want you to spoil anything for me. I'm enjoying the ride. I'm not, I'm not probing for spoilers, but what I am interested in is there's just so much potential for what happens to vision on the page. And so that has a lot of people wondering, you know, sort of where there are opportunities, despite the fact that we saw vision, not handle life outside the bubble very well. Uh, at the end of episode six, there's a lot of opportunities for vision in the future. Would you want to keep playing Vision forever? Would you want to see Vision go in a different direction? What would you want for that character? Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, it, it, this is going to sound like a cop-out answer, but it, it's it's really not. I think that it will, I think it will just become clear whether there are more stories and more interesting stories for, uh, for Vision. And, um... I I have never been bored of playing him, I've, and this has been such a delightful um, moment to take him from you know a, a, a supporting character in the movies, you know, to them having a, a, a TV show about about Wonder and Vision. It's been has been has been just great, and I think it has opened up a huge amount of um, of opportunity for him, but we'll. Just, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. I think it's been so very special um, for Wonder and Vision that you'd want it to be, you know, equally fabulous, you know, and um, and that's hard because <laughs> I think this thing has been so well constructed and and. Um, and uh, but you know by Jack Schaefer and her team of writers and Kevin Feige, you know it's just been so it's been so beautifully wrought, such a bonkers idea and such a big swing. Um, but you know if I, I you know I, I I love him and it's been it's been such a I've had such a you know I it, it's been such a return to something for me. You know I mean not since. I think a knight's tale. I started off in the in in show business. I started off playing sort of gangsters, and then I really resisted wanting to be the the, the bad guy and everything. And so then, and then I went and did this um, this movie uh, called The Knight's Tale, and and then I did a, 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 a romantic comedy because I thought I wonder what romantic comedies are like. And and then I kind of that was really hard. <laughs> Wimbledon and, is that Wimbledon? Yeah. And, yeah. and um, and I don't know. I sort of I hadn't done any comedy since those two things, and it was just it was really fun to go and sort of flex those muscles again. And, um, yeah, and I don't know. And then I I became sort of the evil monk kind of type, and. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? I, I don't know what's next. Um, Everyone has an evil monk phase in Hollywood, though, right? That's, yeah. Phase, you know, um, maybe not as long of an evil, evil monk phase, evil religious phase as mm-hmm. I, I 
segued into. Um, but, you know, I certainly cornered the market on that. And, yeah. and you always have that. Yeah, no, I, I told, I actually told Kevin Feige when I interviewed him at the start of the season that as soon as I watched the three episodes that they sent over, I went and rewatched A Knight's Tale just because I love your Chaucer so much. And it was okay. such, it was such oh. a joy for me to revisit. That's one of my favorite comedy performances. And I love you doing comedy. So I hope oh, you do, I hope you do more of it, you know? That's very nice of you. I haven't done much. And um, it was just so lovely to go and do it again. And I, I, I was so, um, I mean, Lizzie and I and, and Catherine just had such a ball in front of the live studio audience on the first. <laughs> it was embarrassing how, uh, how much we enjoyed hamming it up. The, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting watching the show, watching how well received it's been. Um, I don't know if you've seen the stories this week about, you know, touting it as the number one show in the world. Um, this wow. sort of, yeah, this sort of prolonged engagement with a project of yours um, and this, this degree of popularity and the fact that it got sort of flip-flopped on the schedule. So it's opening up this right. new era of Marvel. How is all of that landing with you? Just the, the enormity of it. Um, well, <clears throat> that's a really interesting question. Yes. It's, it's, um, I don't know really because my experience of it is, is, um, is is during a, a, a pandemic, you know. Wait. So, so um, I've always got very lucky that I've had all of the good bits, like of being famous. In that you got like really people are nice to you at airports <laughs> and <laughs> and great seat at a restaurant. But I kind of look very different in a lot of movies that I've made and. Certainly in the Marvel movies, because I'm purple, and um, and so I kind of, I kind of have been able to sort of slide by. And now, um, when do I go out? I go out to go and get the groceries, and I go out to walk the dog. And and when I do that, I'm wearing a mask and a hat because it's cold, freezing in New York City, mm-hmm. and um, and so I haven't really experienced any uh, any of that and it's probably a good thing it's healthy probably maybe uh it might be nice to have a little but yeah no i i, I think that that is an ideal sort of channel well, to swim in also, right? I live, where are you right now i'm in california okay so i'm in new york so and i still more than any other thing talking because you're, you're talking about night's tale uh, more than any other thing where i'm walking in a naked guy oh, really <laughs> Chaucer. That's great. Yeah. Um, You also, you know, right now, folks want to get more of of your non-purple face. You've got uh, the film Uncle Frank that's on Amazon uh, that is incredibly good. Has some lighter moments from you, but also has a lot of darker stuff in it too. And I can, I was just wondering, you know, what it was about that particular project that that got you excited to be involved in it. Well, Alan Ball is a really clever chap and a really good writer, and he wrote the script, and I kind of, it really, it chimed for me in lots and lots of ways 
Um, and we had an amazing conversation, and he and I have very sim- weirdly similar childhoods with uh, with with a similar trauma happening in those childhoods, and um, and also my father, my my my. my my father was a gay man and lived his life in the closet and then came out at 63 and had this extraordinary relationship with the man who was undoubtedly the, Andy, who was undoubtedly the love of his life. And then uh, Andy died. And then my father, very the biggest sort of tragedy of his life, really, was the fact that he wasn't able to mourn that in 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 a... The, you know the passing of his his lover in a in a real way he um because of the dogma of his catholicism he sort of went back in the closet and it was a very a very, a very and full of shame about his sexual identity and and um and i what i loved about this script was was that it it was a sort of It was a, it was meant to be a movie for anybody who had ever struggled in their life to to live it authentically, and I thought that was really beautiful. And it had a happy ending. And I had noticed that lots of movies um, about this uh, that have a, um, a, 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 a same sex love story at the center of the story end up in tragedy with, you know, one of the partners has to die. And the fact that it was, they live happily ever after felt really radical in quite a gentle way. And I thought a radical, gentle uh, story was, um, felt kind of what the world needed. And, And I really did question whether I had something to offer that, Story, and I think that in the end we talked about it a lot. We talked about that a lot, and I I sort of realised that um, well, I felt that I I I did, and that I wanted to make that story for my dad. Really, to sort of. You know, it's hard. I think it gets harder as you get older to go to those places <laughs> in your head when you're acting. Because, um, you know, like as you get older, you bruise easier and it takes longer to heal. And I think the same thing is true when you go back to places in your head. You know, you don't you don't bounce back so quickly. And so you need a good reason to to go there. And I felt like Alan and I found one, I suppose is the long winded way of saying I really like the script. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that answer. And, and, and I really love that commentary on, um, gentle, radical sort of representation in stuff. And it, you know, not to zoom so quickly back to Marvel, but, I think it matters a lot uh, what whose stories and what kind of stories 
we get to see in those in that blockbuster space as well. It's beautiful to have the Uncle Franks and the, you know. Go ahead. Sorry. That is a hundred percent true, and um, uh, I, I think that's exactly right because otherwise you're preaching to uh, uh, the the choir. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you make a um, uh, a, you know, a small art film. <laughs> you know, it's so important that it's that it's the 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 the, the makeup of our world is being recognised in 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 the blockbuster space. I think is exactly it's exactly right. And I feel like you know, there's there's been significant movement in that direction of late, especially in in the Marvel stories that they're interested in telling. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this new TV era of Marvel where, you know, the, the number of stories are proliferating. We've got, you know, a new, new characters to follow every few weeks, essentially in this, in this sort of Disney plus model, what that means for the ability to tell other stories from other perspectives. Um, you know what? I wish I was the right person to talk to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> their, their plan of what they're going to roll out, but I know that I know that it's very much in the forefront of of Kevin's mind, and I think you can really, I think you can really feel uh, that, and especially if you look back at the movies. I mean, I, frankly, right from the right from the beginning, right from the beginning, he was making maverick choices, right. Maverick decisions. Robert Downey Jr. doesn't sound like a maverick decision at this point, but at the time, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. playing a superhero, uh, you know, directed by John Favreau of all people, you know, it would just seemed like a bonkers idea. Would I mean, people would have thought it was a bonkers idea, and and I think he kept he has kept making um, radical maverick decisions and you know Black Panther was certainly one of them and and like I say when he when when Marvel take big swings they they it it, it often works out it's true uh, my last question for you uh, is you know one of the the sort of juiciest teases you gave in the beginning of the of this series with the, there was an actor that was coming that you really wanted to work with and yeah. you had fireworks together um were you talking about evan peters or is there someone more uh that we should be looking for evan peters or is there someone else that we should be looking for on the horizon there's somebody else that we managed to keep quiet all of this time but right. i mean you know how many weeks left have we got Three. I mean, when this drops, there will be just two more weeks left after. So. Wow. Okay. So yeah, not 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 long now. Uh, but <laughs> okay. We we we've managed to keep the actor uh, a total uh, surprise, which is really really hard today when everybody's trying to uh, trying to steal get photos, and uh, and and we have managed it. So I don't want to spoil it, but it it. It's. I think it's going to be a big surprise for everybody. All right. Uh, oh. a, thank you so much, Paul Bettany, for chatting. Really, really, really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank yeah. You. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. All right, you just heard Paul Bettany talk about um, a number of lovely things, including how uncomfortable it is to film in a harness. Uh, now we have uh, the lovely Mr. Anthony Breskin here to talk about pod- – you're currently in a harness while podcasting, right, Anthony? Isn't that how you yeah, that's exactly. prefer to podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, very comfortable. I'm coming, I'm coming to you from the Nexus. Ah, do you want to start with the Nexus? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is the Nexus and why should we be excited about it, Anthony? The Nexus – well – in its most immediate form is the latest commercial to interrupt the, what would you say? This is the 2010s version of a TV comedy, the modern mm-hmm. family office mm-hmm. uh, approach to sitcom that uh, mm-hmm. WandaVision gave us last night, uh, along with some very big reveals about uh, some things that you and I can feel pretty good about having called. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it was Agnes all along. And uh, so this little interstitial commercial is – it's ostensibly for a uh, – like a pharmaceutical, right? It comes with all the little warnings. Right, right. Like hushed – the hushed uh, rush of warnings that are legally obligated to be part of the feel-good commercial. And Nexus is the drug that um, uh, that it's advertising. But in Marvel lore, the Nexus is – gosh, I guess – like it kind of is a, a shape shifting thing because it fits whatever the plot needs it to. So like <laughs> its exact properties are mm, flexible, let's say, but it's essentially like it's the next, it's the nexus literally means like the point between other points. So it's, um, it's, it's sort of like the gateway to all of these other dimensions. It's confirmation if we needed it of a multiverse. It helps explain why Evan Peters is there as, Quicksilver mm-hmm. uh, being puppeteered, of course, by Agnes. We'll get into that later. So it's like it's it's basically like this is the hallway of doors. You know, in the old Looney Tunes, when uh, Bugs and uh, Yosemite Sam are like running through a hallway that has like thirty doors vanishing <laughs> off into the distance, and they're all just yeah. sort of like opening them and coming in and out. So um, uh, that's like that's a pretty easy concept to wrap your mind around. But then there's the concept of nexus beings. Is this something? Can I throw it to you for this, or you want me to keep going? I don't want to ramble too long. No, I, I want to. I, I I touched on it a little bit with Richard, but I think you probably have a better concept. So uh, the way I described the Nexus was the crossroads of the multiverse. Do you think yes. that that feels accurate? Okay, good. Yeah, but I love. I love. Now I'm going to think of it as a hall, a Looney Tunes hallway with a bunch of doors. A bunch of doors. You can go in and out. Yeah. So it's, I it's, like it. It's a and gateway. Then, like yeah, it's, it's a gateway and, to all these other dimensions. And in, in the multiverse, you know. I think of like the famous uh, Stephen Colbert, Stephen Hawking interview where he goes, well, if there's a multiverse, Dr. Hawking, like, is there a universe where I'm smarter than you? And Stephen Hawking's response was, yes, 
also one where you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So like, Ooh, like a hockingbird. anything yeah, is yeah. possible, but that means not everything is the same, right? So um DC is exploring this, of course. They have like their TV universe and their movie universe right. and their history of different Batman and Superman. And they're now embracing this idea of it's actually all part of the same universe, just different versions of the characters. And that's something Marvel is leaning into as well. Um, but Nexus beings, mm-hmm. uh, I know, I realize the way I'm breathlessly describing this sounds super geeky. Nexus- no, no, no. I, I, I'm so glad you're doing it because I kind of tried to take a swing at this with Richard and I don't think I did. I think I did a really bad job. So I'm excited to hear you explain this better. So they're basically, they're multiverses where things are basically sort of the same, right? Mm-hmm. And slightly a little bit different. And then there are versions of the universe that are drastically different where people are not, don't exist to who exist in other ones, but Nexus beings exist across all universes, right? So in Marvel lore, the Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff is a, is a Nexus being. So she's in every, it's sort of like a constant, I guess you'd say like, Mm -hmm. and uh, Kang the Conqueror, I believe is another one. And of course, we've gotten word that Jonathan Majors, the actor from The Five Bloods and uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, Country yeah. is um, uh, reportedly cast as Kang the Conqueror in, I believe it's uh, the upcoming Ant-Man and the Wasp movie. Yeah. Um, but such an important character, I would have to imagine that he would cross over into other areas. And we also know that the next Doctor Strange movie is in the multiverse of madness. So... Mm-hmm. The multiverse, the nexus, is um, not just a gateway to other universes in Marvel lore. It's literally the gateway to the to their phase four storytelling. I agree. <clears throat> I'll take a breath and a sip of coffee. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited. Uh, King the Conqueror, I, I had forgotten or maybe never knew that was was a, a a nexus being, and that's so excited. I'm so excited for Jonathan Majors to join the MCU, and I'm excited for him to potentially be. Such a bigger figure than like a one-off Ant-Man villain. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's really, really exciting to think about. Um, the the way that I've been explaining to folks, you know, we've been talking about this this idea of the multiverse being part of Marvel's future plans. Um, you know, especially since Evan Peters showed up, but there's just such an easy way to gently hold someone's hand into this concept in the shape of into the spider verse. Mm-hmm. Like I know oh, yeah, that exactly. I, I know that that's a Sony property, but like, you know, Marvel couldn't like wish for a better primer on the concept of a multiverse for, you know, general consumption than into the spider verse. Um, this idea that there could be m- multiple Peter Parkers, um and multiple spider-men and and different gwen stacy's and all this sort of stuff like that and it's just so clever the way that they handle that concept in that film and so uh you know marvel's just going to benefit off of that excellent (laughs) primer i mean i think about this all the time when i think about marvel studios starting Mm -hmm. and kevin feige um as a fan of films as a as a very intelligent um you know, reader of what people are ready for, uh, comic book movie wise and him being realistic about like what the general audience, you know, what they can ha- digest. Right? Yeah. And if you said multiverse, then 
you'd be laughed out of the Mercedes dealership where their, <laughs> where their <laughs> office used to be because they, you know, they were like, no, we can't do a multiverse. But, you know, they've been working on this for a decade. They've, 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 uh, they've taken us to school. We have graduated. We've taken some AP courses in comic book lore as, as a movie going audience. And I think we're ready now for things to get super Advanced weird. Advanced placement. You know? Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, I was, uh, geeking out in a previous installment about like our cinematic language and how we like learn to accept music in movies and how like the documentary format became accepted just as a storytelling device rather than an actual documentary. And I think like, audiences move gradually like they learn the way children learn they learn little bits of language and they learn object permanence and they learn about gravity by dropping their cup off of their high chair and like audiences are the same way uh, it's not that they're ignorant or or childish it's just okay you're wading into the waters of comic book lore i actually think this is one of the things that kind of kept comics maybe isolated and disrespected for so long because they were hard to penetrate, right? Mm, it was hard yeah. to like jump into the traffic because it was moving so fast and it was so dense. And so what the movies and the TV shows are doing, what Kevin Feige and his team have done is like they've slowed that down and allowed you to, to merge and now they're speeding it up, right? Yeah. So you've seen the 25, is it 25 now or 24 Marvel movies? Right, right. Um Okay, like you say, it's you're ready for calculus now, and yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> you've accepted the sentient tree and the talking raccoon. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Doctor Strange and all of his like portal jumping didn't turn you off. Uh, you accepted the time travel of Endgame. Like, all right, they're they're ready. You know what I mean? Like, I also, the, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No. I didn't mean to step on you. No, go you ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was gonna say, I also think that this is a kind of. Uh, uh, like a uh, an inoculation or like a vaccine for <laughs> the fandoms at just the right time because these properties are these franchises are so popular, right? Mm. Batman, Superman, and the DC and Wonder Woman. Uh, who's the best Wonder Woman? You know, is it uh, Gal Gadot or is it uh, uh, Linda Carter and uh, or Carrie uh, Russell? <laughs> or Carrie Russell, yeah, <laughs> uh, or Susan Eisenberg, right? Like so. Uh, uh, I have a special place for, I love that Susan's version of, uh, of Wonder Woman from the Justice League <laughs> cartoons. But, um, you have this debate that's happening because these things are so popular and people stake out their claims, right? Like, I love the Michael Keaton Batman. There's nobody can hold a candle to him. Oh, what about Christian Bale? And you have these factions, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are these tribes that erupt within the fandom. Yeah. And what mult the multiverse does is allows you to go, uh, actually, you don't need to fight over what's definitive. They're all a piece. They're all, they actually cross over and touch each other. They're not just separate. Like you're allowed to have your faves, right? It's totally cool. It's just when you are a big studio who wants to keep that train going, you've also got to deal with the fact that people don't always like change, right? They like the thing to stay the same as when they first liked it. And so the multiverse gives you an opportunity to change it. So here's just a different version. And if you don't like this version, it's not replacing the previous one, right? Yeah. Christian Bale Batman does not replace the Michael Keaton Batman. The um um you know the ver the new versions of uh Spider-Man don't replace the old ones that you love. 
Uh, they're all sharing the same space. And I think that, you know, it's a little bit of an academic exercise. People are still going to fight and <laughs> fight over what their favorite is. And, and occasionally those will get heated and it might lead to some division and there might be versions that people don't enjoy as much. Um, but it does allow the storytellers to say those differences are part of the fabric of the narrative we're telling. Yeah. And I, it, like, there's a lot of, um, potential for there. You know, when, when I think about like people being resistant to change, I think about the fact that, you know, Hugh Jackman played Wolverine for so long. And as far as we know, he is done playing Wolverine because he would like to eat a bowl of pasta again in his life. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so he's like, can I stop doing this now? Right. And, but, but, you know, then the question has been, who's going to be the new Wolverine? And there's been a lot of agita around that. And it's like, but, but won't we be more accepting of whoever else might bear the moniker of Wolverine if it's part of this multiverse storytelling? Won't, won't we be more accepting uh, if someone else picks up the mantle of Captain America, if if we don't have to like stress about no, it's Chris Evans and it's no one else, or you know, won't we be? I mean, the the, the use of the character of Quicksilver in that regard is so genius to me. But yeah. like it 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 gives Feige the opportunity to reboot characters once actors are done playing them in a way that doesn't force him to sort of like have this weird herky jerky thing that yeah. that comic book franchises have been doing for years the the every time there's a new batman we're in a different universe or every time there's a new spider-man we're in a new different universe and and what the multiverse allows is like no it's the same thing we're telling the same story it's just like now this is a different version of that and um it's a way of saying like you don't have to say forget about hugh jackman we've right. got the new Wolverine. zach efron yeah. <laughs> was like, oh. uh exactly so um so yeah, so I think there's a lot of of really fun uh potential there and I think it's a really really smart thing to do. I want to add like one tiny wrinkle into the Nexus conversation. This comes from an email we got from Sam Brown um and he says um, love the pod, just watched episode seven and had to write in. It seems like everyone's focusing on the commercial for Nexus as being about a nexus of all realities and multiverse stuff. But is everyone forgetting the Nexus internet hub from Age of Ultron? This is where Tony Stark found the remains of Jarvis and realized that his base program had been keeping Ultron at bay. Maybe it's meant to reflect that Vision will have a base instinct to come and help Wanda. I don't know. Just didn't want this to be overlooked. Wow. So, good deep cut. <laughs> I've forgotten that completely. Uh, but I still think it's the multiverse thing but i think i think that is really interesting that the phrase the the concept of the nexus is so closely tied to vision's creation as well you know um yeah yeah it's the world internet hub in oslo every bite of data flows through there okay so um that's a plot device that um storytellers use to like seal a hole in their story right like well how could you possibly stop the ultron program from just launching all of these nuclear weapons right Mm -hmm. uh the internet is uh what's the term Uh, decentralized so uh if he could just course through our wi-fi and our uh our computer networks and like then there's no there's no way to build a dam right because there's no barrier walls uh so what they have to go is like have to do is come up with like a thing like okay well all of the internet is routed <laughs> through the nexus in right, Oslo. Right. so yeah. uh so like that's sort of the sentinel from which we can stop ultron 
so that we can have another 40 minutes to solve this problem in the story. But good deep cut. Nexus is also one of those things that, I mean, it, it literally is a, it's a real word, right? It's yeah. the end of the nexus, nexus between nexus, this and that. Yeah. So, um, uh, but it also happens to be, um, an existing portal or, or ga- gateway to other gateways in Marvel. Kudos for the cut, for the, yeah. for the deep cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not dismissing it. Maybe, you know, all right. We'll consider it. Glad he brought it up. <laughs> I thought of Nexus Lexus searches, like the yeah, early journalism, Lexus. like, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I used to um, use a shampoo called Nexus, by the way. Um, I also I don't thought of Lexus, right? Like the car, <laughs> right? So I thought they could have done like a car commercial, right? Like call it the Nexus. It takes you oh. where you want to go. Well, I mean, I think, I think this, this connection to Wanda's Pain, mental health right? is, yeah. is kind of interesting and important. There's this moment. Um, because she's being gaslit so hard by Agnes, right? Mm-hmm. Through all of this. And there's this moment, you know, if you rewatch the episode, that, that, that very modern family moment where, uh, you know, Wanda's talking to the camera, she's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then you hear this, you know, sort of deeper voice on the other side of the camera say, like, do you think on some level you deserve this? Uh, that's Catherine Hahn's voice just modulated down. Uh, if you rewatch uh, it, that's definitely her voice. And so it's just, it just speaks to sort of this like deep psychic manipulation that's been going on. This, this preying upon a woman's like grief and trauma, uh, in all of this. So, you know, I, 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 the car commercial would have been really clever, but I think the mental health aspect is tied to, you know, this whole Wanda thing. So I really like that, yeah. that, mo- that little interruption. Mm-hmm. Don't you think you deserve this? You know, and like to bring it down a level, we'll talk about modulating down. <laughs> like, mm. it, it's always tricky to deal with real world things in comic book stories because there's a lightness to it, a silliness to it, an inter- like a puff, puffy aspect to it, an entertainment um, that's not, that's meant, you know, sometimes for kids, at least in its original incarnations. And so to deal with real, subjects and things that really matter like you got to be real careful right because you could delegitimize them or seem like you're you're making light of them and so you know mental illness i think is one of those things that like look it's a part of our lives it's all a part of behavior it should be a part of storytelling light and dark and heavy and um not so heavy but um it you know you have to be so careful with it in the way you talk about it and the way you Mm -hmm. frame it but that moment where Wanda is like, you know, trying to like kind of rationalize things. I forget the exact dialogue that was happening at the moment, but like trying to just kind of like patch things up as people do in those confessional moments on shows, on reality shows and in like the sitcoms that use that language. And that little voice, it's like, but don't you think you deserve it? Like to me, you know, somebody who's who's like struggled with those things myself, like a lot of people, like, like that is what happens like and you're and you're like wait aren't you supposed to be on my side you're not supposed to say that and like <laughs> things eat at you and and i think the way they've handled it has been really sensitive within the context of of you know comic book style storytelling and and the satire of of sitcoms and the way we tell our own story to ourselves and so the grief that she feels and the uh, tr- post traumatic stress um and the uh, maybe the depression and anxiety that is motivating her to try to create this perfect world, to try to put up this front, to me feels very real. It's metaphorical, right? It's symbolic, 
but that don't you feel you deserve this that, that really hit me i thought that was really well done yeah and i mean i you know i asked elizabeth Olson when i interviewed her about this idea of you know how are they going to avoid falling into a trap of you know the hysterical woman trope you and i have talked right. about this before right like she's uh, crazy right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah or similarly you, you know and it's not just wanda right like this is just we see it over and over again you see it with like khaleesi on game of thrones you see it with dark phoenix and the x-men like this is a story that people have liked to tell women just losing their marbles because they're so emotional like and and it's been done well and it's been done poorly and so you know like what you know how are how are you going to make sure you do it well i have i have a lot of confidence in jack schaefer um you know has shown herself to be a very like uh i think sensitive um and interesting writer and um you know, and, and Elizabeth Olsen spoke to that and she has said in other interviews that she views this experience for Wanda as like therapy. This, this is therapy for Wanda, you know, if you, it, and I think when all is said and done, we'll be able to understand what that means a bit better. But, um, I think that's a really interesting way to think of to it, me, you know? It reminds me of like faking it until you make it, right? Like if you're <laughs> feeling really bad internally, like so often you, well, you or me, you know, the, I will, try to put on a happier face right and like you try you just try to act normal or try to act like you feel okay and like hope that you do and i feel like that's what she's doing with this is like maybe if i just act like all is well i'll be okay i find it really empathetic yeah uh the this show and and the way they're depicting it um again not to bring it down no, 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 no. I, I think, I think, you know, this is I'm, some, some folks have written to the show being like, can you not talk about your theories 24 seven, Joanna? And I'm like, yeah, we can talk about other things as they pertain to the show. However, <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast about a superhero show. What do you want? You don't want theories? Uh, no, no. I mean, I won't, I won't, uh, we want it all. Um, but do you, can I talk to you about sort of a suspicion I have about something that's going on? Yeah, let's hear it. All right, so we get this reveal in this episode, you know, the 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 most predictable reveal ever that Agnes is Agatha Harkness, something we've been talking about since episode yes. one, and that's fine. And they, and they did it at least in like a really fun, goofy way. Um, that, I love I loved how they did it. Oh yeah, with same the theme song. Yeah. However, <laughs> um, I think we're not uh all the way down on this Russian nesting doll of villainy yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, t- I talked a bit to Richard. I, I, I said the word Mephisto to Richard for the first time. So that happened, but um, I want to, I want to, I haven't talked about this yet. So I want to talk to you about this, which is in the first interview we did with Kevin Feige, he brought up uh, Jack Schaefer's use of aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the aspect ratio has been something that I've been really, the way that Feige said it, I, I like to read too much into things, but it almost felt to me like Feige was like, Joanna, pay attention to this. And I was like, That's okay. The um, the <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so there's the one level that the way the aspect ratio has been working, which is to bring us through the various, um, eras of television, right? There's like the square ratio for, earlier television and then it, it it shifts as we go through the decades but there is one and forgive me because i i am not fluent in like what the number call out would be for 
this particular one, but there's one extremely widescreen aspect ratio. Like the box, the boxes come all the way down mm-hmm. on the top and the bottom that has been their code for quote unquote reality. Mm-hmm. So every time you're outside the hex, that's the aspect ratio you're looking at. And a couple times inside the hex, like when Wanda kicked Monica out, uh, it, it, it uh, shifted to that reality um, aspect ratio. And you get it at the end of this episode when Wanda is walking down the stairs into the basement, it shifts into that reality aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> however, I think it's significant. Then we get Agatha's theme song at the end of the episode. Uh, it is never in the reality aspect ratio. Hmm. It is, it is hopping aspect ratios through the decades, but we're never in the reality aspect ratio. And I feel like that's because Agatha herself is like in her own show. Like one is in a show that's inside of Agatha's show that someone else is controlling. Are there like spinoffs or show within a show? <laughs> uh, show within a show. <laughs> uh my further evidence, I mean, that's my aspect ratios theory. And, and like, it, that's born out of me watching a lot of Westworld where they used aspect ratios to give us clues as to what was reality and what wasn't reality. So I'm always on the lookout um, for that. But um, the the book, we're going to talk about really quickly about the so, book that was in. Sorry, go ahead. I yes. have to add to your theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree 100% with what you're saying. Okay. Oh, great. But also okay. at the beginning of the episode, um, when we return to uh, Vision unconscious in a field, reassembled after being sort of like torn apart, drawn back into the hex. Yeah. Uh, it starts with the really like the real, the David Lean style, like super wide, narrow band, even on your your modern television. And then it expands and it fills the whole screen. Right. And that's yeah. where he's walking around exploring the uh, circus and he frees Darcy from her chains <laughs> or she frees herself from her chains, but he frees her from the, uh, the mental chain from the mental chains mm-hmm. of what, that she's a circus performer. And um, it expands to fill the full screen as you just described. And I feel like that full screen thing. Yes. It depicts like the reality outside the hex, but within the hex as when she descends into the basement, I feel like it's like these are the scales falling from your this character's eyes. Like yes. throughout this episode, Vision is no longer deluded. Um, like he's no longer he's still confused about what's going on, but now he knows like, oh, this is messed up. I'm but I'm right. I'm in my right mind. I am I'm a, I'm awake. I'm yeah. awake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I t- uh, I took the uh 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 chance of sticking my neck out into the other world and now I'm back, but I still have my, he still has his sense of perception except when he doesn't, which is when he starts delivering one of those uh, confessionals yeah, yeah. by the side of the road when whatever it is it has stalled them. And he, But then he goes, what am I doing? Like if he takes the yeah. mic off and then he yeah. just ascends, like when it expands that's the character going like, oh I'm, I'm up, I'm awake, I'm around, I know what's going on. And uh, I think you're – but I think that matches up with your theory, right, is that that's what we're seeing. There's a it- reality aspect ratio, mm-hmm. and I just think that you should look for that. Like, what whatever it looks like outside of the bubble, um, look you – know, make that your – okay, that's, that's reality. And whenever inside the bubble is showing you that, 
that's when you're seeing truths being told, right? That's exactly. when Wanda kicks Monica out, and that's when um, that's when Agnes reveals herself and stuff like that. Um, so, so I have something else to add to that. Yeah, that I think is another just little beam of support for your theory, which is when mm-hmm. it kicks into the Agatha song. Which I actually want to talk a little more detail about, but like <laughs> when it kicks into the Agatha song, and then we're like back in TV land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you say like she has her own show, like she's sort of conducting her own version of this, and that Wanda's uh, experience, like living her life through television, so is like channeled through that. Is that your theory? I just want to make sure I grasp the. Hypothesis. Well, I just think you know, like the show is called. It was Agatha. I mean, I understand that it's like a meta jokey thing, right? yeah, yeah. But but like it's you know it's it's got its own little title. It says it was Ag- Agatha all along. And then it says starring Agatha Harkness. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just think that that I think she's so, in her own like nightmare esque reality. That's what I think. Uh, you know, I, it also it reminds me a little. It's not a sitcom, but it's another show from early television. Um, kind of a Twilight Zoney uh, series, but not as famous as the Twilight Zone called The Outer Limits. And do you remember how oh, The yeah. Outer Limits started? It started with like. Um, like this sort of Robert like Stack? stentorian voice. <laughs> it's Robert. Is it Stack. Robert Stack? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? There's no, there's nothing wrong with the picture. You know, do not attempt to adjust your screen. We are controlling the transmission. We control the horizontal. We control the vertical. Back when you had to like adjust the like today, <laughs> oh, sorry, people no, would no. be like, Robert "What are you Stack talking uns- about?" Unsolved mysteries. I apologize. Uh, but yes, yes, outer limits. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Outer Limits is the, yeah. like it was like it was like an anthology series, sort of like the, the the Twilight Zone. And I feel like we are what we have with WandaVision is actually like an Outer Limits style story. Like, right? Mm-hmm. Why are these people living in like seemingly a TV series? Like, it's supernatural. It's sci-fi, but it's weird and disconcerting. So, like, when you what you just described, where like somehow Agatha is, uh, uh you know, puppeteering all of this stuff. It just reminded me of like, we control the horizontal, we control yeah. the vertical, do not adjust your screen. Like, you know, she was, she's playing her, but let's remember the previous commercial with the shark and the yo magic. Yeah. Siphoning. I've been feeding yeah. off yo magic. Yeah. And like the kid on the Island is starving to death because he can't open the yogurt cup, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think like, I get the sense that Agatha and whoever else, with maybe Mephisto uh, is with her uh, that they're n- nourishing themselves off of um, off of Wanda and, her and not just Wanda, but I would, I would argue Billy as well. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, they, that, that Billy is a, another uh, food source for them. What it's do you make of, of yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. What do you make of, I like it here. You're quiet. I think it's because, um, because she knows how to shut it off. So he can't, yeah, it's sort of like how uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was about to say this as if this was a, a, a rule in all vampire lore, but I'm not sure it is. It definitely mm. is in, in Buffy Vampire Slayer. Uh, you can't read the mind of a vampire. Oh, um, right. It's like a mirror. There's no reflection. Uh, so it just sort of like this idea of like uh, she might have a wall up so that an empath like right. Billy couldn't like read her or perhaps that she's not playing an extra role the way that everyone else is. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, can we, can, before we venture off of this, can we talk about the Agatha song? Of course. Of course. <laughs> so like, I love, I really love 
that they went monsters. For the- yes. <laughs> yes. Did you already talk about that with Richard? No, no, no. Monsters and like Adam's family, but mostly monsters. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. The, I loved it. Yeah, like, and I, what I love about the monsters song is like, it's such a strange song, like to, for that show about a, a Frankenstein and a vampire and a werewolf, you know, like this werewolf, this monster family, like, and they chose this song that's like a 1960s Dick Dale style surf <laughs> rock song. Mm-hmm. And they just went like, they just like somehow that became like, it just matched in some weird way. It just worked. And, uh, and I love that they, the playfulness of it. Instead of this, they play, I think it plays up the, the playfulness of the monsters rather than the spookiness of the monsters. Like this isn't meant to scare you. This is meant to be jaunty and fun and sunny. You know, maybe that's where the surf music comes in. But the, the fact that they had that sunny, surfy style, um, Dick Dale, uh, guitar music, uh, is, uh, I thought was just like the perfect match for Agatha because she was, she is kind of like a super fun character, even though yeah. she's clearly evil. Like the winking and the Catherine Hahn performance, like oh, the, so the, good. the literal winking, like just the, the, the spunkiness of her character. Like I just love everything about who she is. And, uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but the last little bit of trivia I would add, uh, it doesn't really relate to anything, but like, do you know who the composer of the Munsters theme song was? No, I don't. Who is that? His name was Jack Marshall, mm-hmm. but, um, he died in the mid seventies and he was a longtime composer and musician, but he is famous because of another reason. He is the father of Frank Marshall, um, the husband of Kathleen Kennedy, oh. producer of Jurassic Park and the last <laughs> picture show. And uh-huh. like, you know, all of these famous movies over the years, ET and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's just kind of a wild little, like small world, uh, situation there but frank marshall's dad composed the monsters oh it's theme, so fun I didn't which know is that. a rocking theme it is <laughs> it really is that's so fun yeah i mean i i do want to go back to this idea of like magical vampirism mm-hmm. like because if you if you if you really look at that if you really look at what um agatha is controlling in that montage. I mean, it's cute to see her pop up in all these episodes, but what she's inducing in bringing back Pietro in, it seems like she's the one who was sort of pushing vision to figure out what was going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Like she, in the herb scene, she kind of like, she gets herb to act weird that tips vision off that something's going on. Yeah. You know, she's manipulating him at the edge of town, like all this sort of stuff like that. So she's pushing vision to, and all of that is doing is causing Wanda to, uh, use more of her power. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it, she's just provoking Wanda the way that she was trying to sort of emotionally provoke the boys into growing up. You know what I mean? By like with the dead dog and all of that stuff like that. Right. Like that she's just like poking and prodding these very sensitive points. This, this sort of like gaslighting emotion, emotional mental manipulation. Don't you think you really deserve it? Sort of shit. Um, in mm-hmm. order to, you know, push Wanda to use her powers more in order to then feed off of that magic use. That to me yeah. seems like the plot to is To stretch right? and to yeah. break it down. I also think yeah. there's an aspect of you're absolutely right. Like she's she's trying to spark an awareness in vision. And right. she's and I think that's a wedge she's trying to drive between vision and Wanda. 
Right. You know, is that she wants Vision to come back and tell Wanda to stop. Because I think she wants those two at odds. Because united, they're probably bigger than she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But as long as she can keep... And also, like, Wanda loves Vision and she gets strength from him. And vice versa. And, you know, that's what a good relationship does. Is you're stronger together, to use a phrase. <laughs> borrow a phrase. Uh, Paul uh, Bettany said in, in the interview that's in this podcast, he said he called Scarlet Witch Vision's raison d'etre. And I was <laughs> like, oh, it's just so, like... That, you know, and that's that's sort of Darcy's point in this episode, right? She's like, no matter what else has gone on, all this stuff has gone on. But at the core, what's important here is the love story between you and Wanda, which yeah. is something that, like, you know, the folks making the show have talked about before. This idea, like, this is a love story, you know, to quote Fleabag, right? Like, this is a love story. Mm-hmm. You're watching a love story, and it may not have a happy ending, but uh, that's the core, like, you know... No true love story I, I, does. Have I don't think it's either. a yeah. I don't. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that like in a lot of the trailers for the season, you have this sense that Wanda and Vision will unite. You know, I think they say something like, "There's some language like let's defend it.' Like this is our home. Let's defend it." Mm-hmm. We haven't seen that from them them yet, but it feels like Vision is coming back to her uh, to hopefully make a stand with her. That would be something I would like to see. So, yeah. yeah. Do you think we're done with the TV shows? I do, unless unless we get like some fun glitchy stuff. I do think we're done. Yeah, we're kind of. It's like the set is breaking down, though, right? Yeah. We're not going to get yeah. like a new. I, like I was trying to think, like what comes after Modern Family in the Office in terms of like sitcom language. I'm not really that's sure. What, that's what I tried to ask Bettany, but he's too too spoiler savvy to give me any uh, answer. But I was like, okay, once we're done with this, what's the roadmap? You know, and I think the roadmap actually is Marvel movie. <laughs> I think that's and that's that's what they've long said, right? Is that we were going to do this fun TV thing, and then it was going to end in a way that would feel more familiar to Marvel movie fans. So, Marvel yeah, movie. yeah. And but I really, I don't know. I like the way this was so different. Like I've seen the trailer for. Uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and you know, it was. I like those characters, but it was just like an action trailer, and it didn't intrigue me the way WandaVision has. I wasn't enchanted, so to speak. Like it just felt like, okay, these guys are going to go around and fight and jump out of planes and kick butt, and that's going to be more of the same. But I feel like Wanda really stretched for a while. Yeah, I have heard. That that was my impression too. Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I have heard that perhaps thanks to uh, a COVID pause, they were able to rework some things. And I, my understanding is that they're they're actually going to be taking a an interesting deep swing. It's basically like uh, who in America is allowed to carry the shield of Captain America is a question that that series is All interested right. in. Yeah, I mean, and that they're also selling me. it to Super Bowl audience, so like, I guess I could see why they just keep it action happy at, like, at kick, kicky punchy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would hate to go from one division, which is so weird and and experimental, to something super traditionally kicky punchy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we are going to get that, but I do think they're trying to put something more interesting into it as well. I hope so. Cool. Um, <clears throat> all right, let me circle back to this. <clears throat> Uh, who else is pulling the strings here? <laughs> Idea. Um, we got Senior Scratchy back. 
We did, we did. You got, and there was like a uh, an interesting bug on the, <laughs> the drapes. Um, did you? Um, so you noticed the book down in Agatha's yeah. basement. Want, before we get to the book, do you want to talk about the bug? Do you want to talk about the bug? What I do you want to say about, about the, bug? the bug? Okay. I saw that bug and I was like, oh my god, that's a that's a cicada. It is a cicada. And, um, when I was a kid, uh-huh. this. To me, this is like a magical bug. Like, <laughs> I was fascinated by these things as a kid. We had these strange pine trees in our backyard, and we had a rope swing. And so there was this big, like, dead patch of dirt because we were kicking, pushing ourselves around, like, hard-packed dirt. In the night during the summer, holes would appear in this dirt, and out mm. would crawl these cicadas, like, in their pupa form. And they looked, God, I don't know how to describe them. You know, there's like water bugs that like are super microscopic little like water bears <laughs> that have like the claw hands and um, multiple legs. Like these things would crawl out. They were like giant har- armored brown beetles and they would crawl up the side of the tree mm-hmm. and in the night dry their backs would split open and out would crawl these cicadas, which are like giant flies, like, yeah. like, like uh, almost a ping pong ball sized mm-hmm. fly. And, but they leave behind these like potato chip, like crusts of their former shell clinging to the tree. And I was haunted by these things. And when I saw it, and, and I don't have them in California. Uh, maybe they exist out here, but I've never seen one around the way I did no, growing up no, in Western no. Pennsylvania. And like, okay, so. When I, I'm, I'm like, again, a little breathless here, geeking <laughs> out. Cicada when I, talk, yeah. When I saw the cicada, yeah, we got a cicada podcast, so kind of a vanity fair. Like, but when I saw the cicada, rather than like a fly, you know, flies are like, like the Amityville horror, like the window full of flies, like that traditionally denotes like a kind of rot yeah. or decay. And seeing the cicada, I was like, oh, that's such a transformative creature. Right. Like mm-hmm. it goes from this creepy crawly to this mm-hmm. kind of still scary, but powerful, like compact dragonfly. And, um, it felt like metamorphosis to me. And when she went down into the basement, I thought, Oh, like just emerging from the earth, like this thing, it's like these buried little secrets that rise up and then creep out in the night and mm-hmm. fly around and they're noisy and troublesome. But, um, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting choice that it was a cicada. So do you have any further thoughts on that or am I like completely like cicada oh, I crazy? Lo- I love this. I didn't I I mean as a Cal a long, like lifelong Californian, I have no firsthand experience. Like I've heard cicadas when I've been on the East Coast, but I've never experienced that. So I love that analysis of it. I I um uh, thank you. No, my 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 noting the cicada has more to do with like my con- me constantly on the lookout for animals that might be Mephisto. <laughs> But, um, but I, I like your, your, uh, analysis much better. But, um, whether it's Mephisto or Nightmare, I, like, I don't really actually care, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which one it is or some amalgam of the two. But, um, I wanted to mention, and I did talk to Richard about this a little bit, but I wanted to mention, so like, Wanda's magic is, is coded red and Agatha's is coded purple. But mm-hmm. the, the book down in the basement has an orange, magic around it which to me says there's another magic user somebody else yeah in the shadows um and uh the book itself um 
you know, I welcome any emails from folks who might know more. Uh, Anthony and I did a little bit of research beforehand, but there's this book called uh, The Darkhold uh, in Marvel, which is like a, it was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's a, it's, it's like a Necronomicon-esque. It's the, it's like the, the <laughs> evil saw, secret book. Uh, the grandfather of grimoires is something which sounds like a, like a sort of like a boxing hype up. The grandfather of grimoires sort of like, uh, <laughs> uh, please welcome the dark hold. Uh, so the dark hold, this. The terror of tomes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this, this book doesn't, um, look like the dark hold that was in ages of shield, nor does it really look like any version of the dark hold that's been in a Marvel comics. I think it looks more like Sam Raimi's Necronomicon from the Evil Dead uh, franchise, um, though it doesn't really look that much like the Necronomicon. But, um, you know, it is interesting if that book survives the series and becomes part of whatever is going forward and Sam Raimi is directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that there's a, a grimoire here, you know, and it might it might come into play for Doctor Strange. Um, so now is the time of the podcast when I need to burden you <laughs> with some information I already dropped on Richard, which is my big actor cameo, favorite big actor cameo theory. Yeah. Well, we didn't get the engineer this episode, right. did we? We got Major Goodner. Yeah. Who we don't, I don't know that that's a character. That's uh, it's, kind of I, I, I don't think so. Um, and I, I didn't get a big moment, so I'm guessing that's it yeah, wasn't and, much. And it wasn't like, hey, here's the engineer. It was like, you know, so I feel like the engineer is someone else. Um, and and I want to point out a, an interview that Tiana Paris gave this last week too. I think it was might have been. I I don't know the outlet. I apologize. I think it was maybe comicbook.com, but I'm not sure. But uh, Tiana Paris says, I can't wait to see what y'all's reaction is when you learn what the aerospace engineer is. Everything about this show excitement excites me. There's so many little surprises, things you don't expect. Okay. So that that makes me feel like that's still coming, right? Because we didn't have an aha moment, unless she's talking about like uh, the fact that her transformation into Spectrum comes oh, yeah. in that scene. And me, like the quote is like, take I, I I would like the full I would love the full paragraph of that quote, uh, so I can get the full context that does not exist on the article where it appeared. So I, I wish I had heard her say it so I could better understand exactly what she was saying there. But it seems to me like there's still something maybe kind of exciting coming with this aerospace engineer that they keep teasing, but that's not who I have my eye on right now. Um, <laughs> so sorry to do this twice on this podcast, but it has to be done. Um, all right. So, um, Paul Bettany gave an interview. I mean, he talked to me, but he also talked to Esquire this week. And when talking to Esquire, he said, this person, this actor, this huge actor that's coming that we're, that we have not figured out yet is someone he's always wanted to work with his whole life. Um, you know, and, and then when they arrived, it's going to blow our socks off. Um, and so the, the, the intrepid internet sleuths have dug up an old 2015 interview where Paul Bettany said his, like, mentioned his three acting idols when he was growing up. Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. Um, Al Pacino stuck out oh, to a lot of people, no. uh, because of course he has played the devil before and, uh, has met with Kevin Feige before, has talked about being in a Marvel project before. Um, and has said, like, sure, when the right things come along, I would totally do it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Guardians of the Galaxy. I would totally do it. 
Uh, so what do you think of Al Pacino as a late season reveal of the ultimate mastermind of everything that's going on? Mmm, I, I don't know. It's a lot of hoo-ha. <laughs> that's the uh, exact same reaction Richard had. <laughs> did he really? Did he say hoo-ha? Yeah, like, oh. he, he hoo-ha, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, we got to cut that out then. I don't want to. No, wanna, no, uh, no. Everybody no. makes the same joke. Uh, it's the easy joke. I mean, yeah, look, he was the devil's advocate, right? But, mm-hmm. uh, um, do you know, De Niro's not a outside the realm of possibility. Like, if you were going to. Totally. Could be De Niro. De Niro. I mean, like, let's imagine a scenario, right, where Pacino or De Niro, but I'm leading Pacino, shows up at the end here. Because, like, who could it be that's so big that we would be like, oh my god? And I think Pacino or De Niro, it's but a, more so Pacino, honestly, would fit the that aged for me. Pacino from uh, the, <laughs> the Irishman. Netflix, the Irishman. <laughs> Uh, what if he shows up? He's Nightmare or Mephisto or some combination of the two. Uh, and then he's an antagonist. He's the antagonist of Doctor Strange. Like, you know, that, that he survives the series. Yeah, because yeah, I would say, you know. I can't see them bringing him on just for like ep- the final, final episode of, uh, WandaVision, right? That seems like not enough for him. But, uh, yeah, I could see him being in Doctor Strange. That would be. Mm, yeah okay all right i'm on board i'm digesting i, I, it. I appreciate I'm you it. yes anding me in this um i will just say that it is it is an answer that finally satisfies me i have not i had yet to hear an answer that satisfied me because like the the speculation about like it being magneto or professor x or all this like i to be clear i do expect benedict cumberbatch is going to show up at the end of this season as well briefly perhaps but like i i don't think that's definitely not who Paul Bettany's talking about if he says, my whole life, I wanted to work with this person. Plus, he already worked with Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, I think it's like a Pacino. I do. I really do. So I'm I'm excited to be wrong again about that. But we've been, our batting average is pretty good so far on this podcast. So we'll see. Yeah, we, we, we don't stick our net. We, look, we, we try to make educated guesses yeah. here. But, uh, <laughs> I yeah, don't know. I could, I could see that. I mean, yeah, he... I like it. Uh, I'm rooting for that. Okay. They're filming Multiverse of Madness right now. Um, So it could be that, like, they're doing all the stuff before Pacino, uh, you know, right now. And then as soon as Pacino appears, they'll be like, uh, you know. And El Pacino. And- yeah. Mephisto will, will appear next in Doctor Strange. You know, something like that. Or Nightmare. Um, I personally, I think it's Nightmare rather than Mephisto, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the theory, man. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. So, um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm, I'm down for that. I think that's, I think we're getting into some pretty deep lore here, and I think you need a little star power in order to help pull through some of the the normies, you know, like (laughs) uh, the risk, I think, of Marvel is they as they delve deeper into things like the multiverse and the nexus is uh, you do run that risk, like I described earlier, of like people going like, "Uh, you know what, I I, I don't know if I can catch up. And uh, but I think. A lot of times casting somebody famous is a shorthand. They bring the whole weight of their career 
and their reputation with the audience and, and the feeling the audience has about them to the part. Like Robert Redford in um, – Winter Soldier. In Winter Soldier. Like mm-hmm. – not like his greatest part ever. Like, uh, it's clearly like just a supporting bureau- bureaucrat part. He's turns out, I mean, you know, I won't get into the spoilers of it, but like he's got a good twist in that, uh, movie. And, um, uh, but he brings all of, um, the weight of his, like, uh, three days of the condor and that 1970s paranoid thriller motif that they wanted to inject into that story to the role, to the performance. So you bring Al Pacino in and he has that, you know, devilish demeanor. Going back to Michael Corleone, look, that's the story of a of a good person who goes bad, and it's a tragedy. It's not quite as like over the top as the Devil's Advocate, but like he has been playing people who are uh, who who succumb to evil for a very long time. It's the gleam. He does the gleam in the eye, yeah. so you know, so perfectly. Um, yeah, no, so, you know, similar to what you're saying with Redford, I think like Michael Douglas really helps give us a lift on the idea of like pin particles and all sort of yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Or Kurt, brings Kurt, coma to the part, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or Kurt Russell, you know what I mean? Like, um, oh, we're gonna do a God Planet. was also your dad let's get kurt russell and then like everyone's just kind of along for the ride and it's fine you know what i mean so i i think i think that's true that like this idea of like okay we're introducing the literal devil or or this demon called nightmare something like that into this universe um that's a, a niche enough character that normies aren't going to be like, oh, my God, Mephisto's here. But if they're like, oh, my God, Al Pacino's here, you know what I mean? It's going to be or or similar or De Niro. I don't want to leave De Niro out in the cold, but no. I really am Team Pacino. So, you know, can I float uh, another a little theory of my own? Yeah. OK, so the Nexus situation got me thinking about um, it sounds a little Star Warsy, but this is a Marvel phenomenon, too, called the life force. Mm-hmm. And uh, the life force, people who can manipulate the life force uh, can, they're either perceived as nexus beings or that gives them like similar powers to nexus beings. Like it just, their ability to manipulate this <laughs> unseen power in the universe called the life force. It, it, it puts them on the similar level of, of nexus beings who are able to tr- transverse these various uh, dimensions. Uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's not clear whether like breaking in to manipulate this power makes you a nexus being or if nexus beings just have an easier time controlling it. But look, it's also the power of life and death, right? And if that is something that Wanda has at her fingertips, literally, uh, that might also explain Vision and his return. You know, is is there's still an outstanding question of how did, how is Vision alive? And if she has been able to tap into the Nexus and mm. use that to harness the life force, again, I realize we're delving into ultra low on the Marvel Wikipedia page like <laughs> entry. Um, but I think that I could see that becoming the thing that um, maybe Agatha needs or wants. And perhaps that's what she needs to unlock Mephisto, right? Or Nightmare or whoever Ralph turns out to be. 
mm-hmm. that sh- you know maybe he can appear as Senior Scratchy or uh, you know these uh, other the stork or these other animals, but he can't manifest. Like maybe that's as far as Agatha can get him, but she needs the life force that um, Wanda has harnessed to bring Vision back in order to resurrect him fully. Yeah, no, I love, I love that. I love that he can't, <laughs> no, I do, that he can't be corporeal. Uh, that's, that's a word I use a lot on my lost podcast, but, that he can't be like, you know, a corporeal in, in, in his human form until they've sucked enough <laughs> life force out of Wanda and Billy. Yeah, I'm worried about the, I'm worried about the kids. Uh, you know, they've vanished in this episode earlier when the milk, milk stuff is glitching in Wanda's kitchen, right? We get a milk carton with a missing kid on the side of it. You know what I mean? Uh, which is a very 80s iconography, but I think it, you know, mm-hmm. we get that, that aside to the camera where, where Agnes is like, I did bite a child once sort of thing. So anyway, uh, I thought that was uh, a very witchy thing to say, by the yeah, way. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, these are all our fun thoughts and theories. Uh, this is, this is where we are. We, we've got, Two more episodes to go. Uh, Anthony, until we're back uh, to find out what else Agatha is up to, uh, where can folks find you? You can find me at the Nexus. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I'm everywhere, baby. I'm on VanityFair.com, just writing away for you. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find Richard at Rylaws. Uh, you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com, your thoughts and theories. Uh, and yeah, you can find all of us at vanityfair.com any day of the week. And we will see you back in Westview next week. See you then. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 